So I have like never heard of Rotary, even though Anna Jones World does have a Rotary Club that does a lot for the community. I learned about it because my childhood best friend, um, he actually went to Germany. He's three years older than me. So whenever he was a junior in high school, I would have been in my eighth grade year. And he had a going away party where, you know, it was like, oh, Eli's going to Germany. Woo. <laughs> um, and I was still pretty young then. So I hadn't really thought about like, oh, if Eli can do this, then I can do it. Um, but then he came back and it was my freshman year of high school and he was a senior. So of course, like whenever you're a freshman, <laughs> you really want the seniors to, um, you know, like take you under your wing and, you know, stuff like that. And that's what he did. And I think he noticed that, like, already I was pretty bored of, like, living <laughs> in Anna Jones world. Um, and I think he could tell that I was pretty unhappy even as, like, a 14-year-old. Mm -hmm. And so he thought, you know, like, you would be great for this because you're open-minded. You know, you're not afraid just to, like, jump into something. Um, and he said, like, let's keep talking about it. Like, I'll introduce you to Leon, who is this, um, like, exchange officer who's been doing it for decades. And he's also, like, the sweetest man. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of how it started. And I just told my mom one day, like, hey, Eli said I can do this, and I really want to do it. You know, it'd be awesome to live in a different country for a year. Um, and she said, like, at first I thought I, I was just joking. And then I kept talking about it. And then my mom was like, well, I guess I better ring ring Leon, and so then he came over, and we kind of had a heart-to-heart -heart as to, like, what it means for you to leave for a year, mm -hmm. um, but that really didn't phase me. I was just like, I just want to get out of this godforsaken town, so um, I remember for, like, two weeks, I, like, spent maybe five hours after school every single day just, like, researching Rotary, researching the countries I'd want to go to, writing my cover letters, you know, and you have to fill out like a really long application. It's about like 23 pages. Mm -hmm. um, and really like thinking about like, why am I the person that they should send across seas? Because there's also like a public service mission with Rotary um, and they have the motto service above self. And that really aligns to how I was raised. And I'm like my parents raising me to be like a productive citizen in terms of like being engaged with civics and understanding that like you have agency, so therefore you should use it. Um, and so I uh, like, had to somehow, you know, like, write this statement that, like, here's the reason why I'm the student you should send, which I think, at, you know, I think at this time I was 15 by this point. Um, I had never really thought about myself like that, and I never really thought about myself being able to do cool things. I think at some point, like, as a child, child, like four or five years old, I was super adventurous, you know, I was willing to go up to anybody. I didn't have any type of social anxiety, but by the time I was um, 14 and 15, like something, I'd lost something by that point, mm -hmm. and I was super, getting more and more anxious, um, you know, it was, it was just like a hard time being a girl, especially whenever you're kind of a tomboy like me, mm -hmm. and you live in a very, like, conservative Christian community where if you don't act like a woman or a girl, you're considered to be, like, different or weird, mm -hmm. um, or just like an abomination, so, you know, all those things have really gotten into my head, and then for me to be like, for someone to give me this type of window to an opportunity and just being like, you just have to like grab for it. Mm -hmm. I thought like that was just like a rekindling of kind of, I guess, that like inner child that we all have. 
which I think was really important for me to do at that moment in time because I was then able to like keep that up throughout my exchange whenever I graduated high school and then I had to like re-find my young adult self then after (laughs) high school but like understanding that that's a cycle that you're going to go through Mm -hmm. learning that at a much younger age than what my peers were learning it at um allowed me to kind of be like a helping hand (laughs) whenever that time came for them because then I was like I've already done this you know I've already had like an existential crisis three or four times (laughs) so how old are you now I'm 22 okay so I thought you were older than 22, and I'm absolutely astounded <laughs> right now. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm taken aback more than I already was. Um, this is where I'm going to do the break-in, because if I don't do the break-in now, I'm going to get lost in just a, a, a amount of being impressed uh, in the individual. That's episode 56 for the WTF Carbondale podcast, where we talk to interesting people about their interesting lives and tie it all Back to this little old place we call home, Carbondale, Illinois. Amelia Blakely, episode 56. Okay, cool. There's there's the break-in. That's all done. When, so when did you, just to get this out of the way, because now I'm even more astounded, did you work for the Headmans when you were in, like, high school then? Yeah, I graduated. So I started working at Headmans. <laughs> my last day at Dairy Queen and Anna. So I worked at Dairy Queen and Anna for my whole like senior year. Uh-huh. And then it just got to a point where I was like, I hate fast food and I hate capitalism. I need to go somewhere else. <laughs> and then I really wanted to keep up my Swedish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we somehow learned that there was a Swedish winery with like people who were speaking Swedish. And so that's why I went to work there after I'd graduated high school. But I was like, you know, I graduated high school like May 17th and then started working at the winery May 27th. Okay. So I, I, I don't think we would have crossed over no. I, I think I was there like seven years ago I couldn't even tell you at this point it's just been a while but so when when you were doing rotary you said to keep up your Swedish did you go to Sweden as part of your rotary exchange yeah that's where I lived for a year that was my like host country is what okay. they call it yeah I lived in Gothenburg Sweden which is like the second largest city in the country. It's, it's totally not Batman's home. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Well, well, they call it in Swedish, it's called Gothenburg, uh-huh. but because we, you know, don't have a certain alphabet that they do, yeah. we call it Gothenburg in English, but yeah. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, like, getting, get, like, when you, when you, were you presented with a, a slate of options for yeah. Rotary, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're given, you know, at the time I did it, it was 2013 was, like, me looking at the prospective countries that they were going to have for, like, roughly the next two years. Mm-hmm. Because, like, doing a foreign exchange program means that the foreign exchange program is at the whim of foreign relations. Mm-hmm. So some countries you have an option to go to some years, some countries you don't. Some mm-hmm. countries have language requirements where you have to like know French or already know German or already know Spanish. Some countries don't. Um, usually if you come from an English-speaking country, they want you to go someplace else for you to learn a language. Mm-hmm. Um, also, some countries, if you have certain like mental illnesses or certain um, physical conditions and you take certain type of medications, you have to like make sure you find one country that will allow you to even import mm-hmm. those medications. Like I had a friend um, in Sweden who her parents had to send her her medicine and like hidden in like care packages because she had Lyme disease wow. um, and she was also gluten intolerant. Mm-hmm. And 
there was like an issue with her prescription and like them not letting it go overseas and so then her parents had to like finesse it and you know put like it in like care packages um but that's how you're kind of uh you know that's how your country selection is given and then you're allowed to pick up i think whenever i was there you can choose you know, like your top three countries um usually you get your top three but if you don't then you have to list you have to actually make a list from like one to 25 mm -hmm. but really they only tell you to like really contemplate the first three mm -hmm. um so I, I know some people who've gotten like their fifth choice mm -hmm. um <laughs> or like stuff that's been really down on the list but it ended up being um an okay situation but sweden was my first choice um I think it was just like I read about it and I just thought like wow this country sounds exactly how like my personality is where it's like slightly awkward sarcastic um you know I love cold weather I <laughs> love um everything about the arctic like if I could live in the arctic I would mm -hmm. I don't know what it is about it but it's just like a very special place um and so yeah I just I went there and I really fell in love with it like, I came back feeling more Swedish than I did American. Mm -hmm. Because, like, whenever you are raised in a liberal household in a very conservative area, mm -hmm. you kind of get this sense that, like, or at least I did growing up, that, like, Anna Jonesboro, like, wasn't the place for me. Mm -hmm. Like, I wasn't supposed to be there. And, like, people who thought like me, like, were kind of outcast. Mm -hmm. And so for me to go to Sweden where, like, everyone thought like me, <laughs> it was, like, unbelievable. Like, oh... People are friendly to gay people, you know, or like, I mean, Sweden has its own problems, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, it has like its problem with white supremacy and racism. But I think, you know, at 15, I was just so enamored with like the fact that my peers were getting paid to go to school because like it came that, that system, that type of, what's it called? Safe, social safety net mm -hmm. came about in the 1970s in Sweden because um, there was an issue with poverty and like kids not having the resources that they needed to go to school and so then the government was just like well then we will supply you with enough money for you to buy your boots for school your your coat you know your supplies and then so that's still kept on and to me you know I had come from a place where like people bemoan taxes and like where, you know, if you ever get on unemployment, it's like something to be ashamed of. Yeah. And so that was completely different to me that like people live in a type of society where like that's okay. Where there's actual society. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not like this like messed up version of society that we live in in America. Yeah. So what was, what was the focus? I mean, was there, was there a particular, is there, when you get into the, is it Rotary Youth Exchange International, or what's, what's the phrasing of it? Yeah, that? so Rotary International is like the umbrella organization. Mm -hmm. And then um, Rotary International has very different pro various different programs, sorry. They have like a polio vaccination program, where like they just go around the world and vaccinate people for polio. Um, they have the Rotary Youth Exchange program. They also have um, Interact Clubs and Rotaract Clubs. Mm -hmm. So those are clubs that are localized to high schools um, and colleges. Mm -hmm. They also um, are trying to start, or they may already be started in different communities, but we tried to have one here in Carbondale co called the Rotary Community Corps. Mm -hmm. And it was for people who you know, didn't have the time or money 
um, to join Rotary International because you do have to pay fees. Mm -hmm. It is kind of expensive to be a part of the club, mm -hmm. um, and you also have to be invited mm -hmm. to be a part of it um, in terms of, like, being a part of, like, the Carbondale Club or the Carterville Club. Mm -hmm. And you really have to, like, work on your networking skills. That's really what's kind of a good part about Rotary is that if you're not good at networking, this forces you to be good at networking. Mm -hmm. um, and let me just think about what other... They also have Rotex. So, like, I'm considered a Rotex mm -hmm. because I'm a Rotary Youth Exchange alumni. Okay. But it's for um, people like me who still want to be involved in the program and want to be involved in Rotary, but we are, you know, college students or young adults, and we just don't have the time or the money to become <laughs> a part of some of these larger organizations, but we still want to be involved um, in making sure our districts continue this tradition of um, sending kids out and then accepting kids in. That's awesome. Okay. It, it helps to, and, and I've had, I've had uh, a reasonable amount of exposure to Rotary activity over the past several years. Just, I mean, e even here, um, you know, one of our, one of our uh, key folks that, that helped take care of, of the varsity for, for many years, Gregory Kupiak, he was kind of my first uh, exposure to that. And, and just like what, you know, and, and the, really focusing as you know on service and and what that means and and how everything operates and it took me years to kind of come around and even like like take the next step and be like well i'm doing all this volunteer work and gregory's over here talking about and and you know he's going to morning noon and, and nighttime program. yeah <laughs> it takes a lot of you keep up with everything it's like you know maybe, maybe it's time to touch toes into the water and um and checked out and, and got to see just a handful of, of things about about Rotary, kind of just, uh, you know, kind of guesting it at, uh, at meetings for a little while um, and and got to see things like, oh, God, John, John Patton, who who's part of their whatever their their onshore youth programs are. They've got like a, yeah. some, some sort of camp of some sort. I, I don't Is know. Is it called Bryla? Are you talking Ryla, about that? Yes, yeah. That, yep, Ryla. Ryla is like if you can't do exchange, you need to do Ryla. Okay. It's like the second best. Um, it is domestic. It's not as long. It's not a year. It's just a weekend. Mm -hmm. But um, like that's really good for kids who don't have the interest for going away for a year um, or the drive or the resources or like the, you know, whatever their circumstances is. Because Ryla is just like going to a summer camp, but it's like professional. Yeah. And you like learn how to present yourself. You know, especially for people who grow up in the same circle of people, mm -hmm. you kind of forget how to be social with, like, people <laughs> who don't know you. Because you're just there. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, that was something that Rotary actually taught me. It's like, at, at the Anna Jonesboro Rotary Club, and just in Anna Jonesboro, everyone knows you by relation of your kin. Mm -hmm. So they know me by, like, oh, you're Dee Dee D. Kurtz's daughter, mm -hmm. or you're Dorothy, you know, Kurtz's granddaughter, um, or Don Kurtz's granddaughter. And <laughs> that comes with, like, certain baggage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so whenever people meet you and they don't know that baggage, it's so interesting to have yourself received by somebody who doesn't know that mm -hmm. and they you know and it gives you like a fresh perspective of yourself which i think is really refreshing sometimes daunting but necessary i think if we are to grow as people which clearly has been functional for you thus far <laughs> 20 freaking two <laughs> uh, i mean i could i could have sworn i was 
just in the back of my mind that you have been around for much longer than just a couple of years. But it, it, at least <laughs> if it feels like it's been seven years and it's only been, you know, three <laughs> that, that, that you've been in a sphere of folks that, I, that I've been aware of and, and engaged with and, and, and whatnot, it, it's, it's impressive that, that it says something about the impact that you have on folks, um, which one of the components for uh, doing the, the youth exchange, right, is fundraising, right, which you have to have a pretty big impact on folks to make that happen. And, and one, of the, one of the folks that I've had on before episode 47, 48-ish, um, Naomi Tolbert, uh, she uh, would have done this several years prior to, to your activity, but she talked about, you know, having to go through and, and do a, a lot of fundraising and spent, you know, uh, you know, about the same amount of time fundraising as she did actually going and experiencing, uh, yeah. you know, the time overseas. Yeah. Yeah, I was, you know, I'm fortunate enough that my family background, I did not have to fundraise. Great. I had a college fund that I was very lucky to have, and my parents, you know, my grandparents put forth before they passed, but um, my parents are alive, but my grandparents aren't. That's what I meant by that. I don't want to confuse anybody. <laughs> um, but, you know, the girl that came after me, that's from Anna, that I got into the program, she comes from a very different set of circumstances and so she did have to fundraise and so I was involved with that in helping her um, and you know and just promoting it you know going to the fundraiser donating my money to the cause because she was kind of like the, the person that this program is really for you know somebody who wouldn't have any other type of opportunity to you know she went to the Netherlands and I was just like that's what's so cool about this program is that you get people who live in like Lit Creek or for me, it was Anna. Mm -hmm. um, and you're like, those are places that, like, that you can't even imagine, like, living overseas and ever you live there because your life is just so oriented around, like, what's familiar. Mm -hmm. And so many people just, like, stay in one place for so long, and there's nothing wrong with that. But Thank I, you. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> no, so, like, I'm sorry. I'm doubting through and through. I can't help it. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't I, – I think there's something really – admirable about being that steady and consistent in an area but I also think that with that comes you get like stuck in traditions that might not bear very meaningful or productive or you know just like good fruit mm -hmm. and I think that that's what's good about traveling is because when you come back and you start to see like oh this you know unique element of living here is good and we should maintain it and cultivate it and protect it but this other part well this is causing a lot of trauma you know it's causing you know like this is the reason why every young person leaves mm -hmm. <laughs> whether it's um you know extreme religion um or just you know kind of <laughs> the what it's like to live in a small town yeah. where people talk and gossip and mm -hmm. stuff like that they get catty and, and, and once something occurs it's 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 the scarlet letter exactly you know life from there on out and if you can't remove yourself physically mm -hmm. then you can never get beyond things that are that are more in the ether than they are in reality yeah yeah like your reputation even in like carbondale your reputation because carbondale is still so small enough mm -hmm. that if you don't have a good reputation things are might be harder for you mm -hmm. you know it's not like in a city where you're anonymous um which i think is 
a good thing and a bad thing. It teaches you to be aware, (laughs) Um, but it can also, you know, cause a lot of anxiety and a lot of just like toxic thinking. Well, and, and this is a good point to kind of break away from from the rotary chat and get more into uh, the 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 broader person that is uh, Amelia, because it was a topic that I've discussed with multiple folks on on this podcast. But one that sticks out was like early on, like episode number four, uh, a gentleman named Mike Baltz. He does uh, the now, now he writes and does stuff for WSIU, and he's all over the place. Um, but we talked about how these opportunities to engage with uh, media organizations and, and to share your expertise with a, with a much larger audience uh, just wouldn't be plausible in a larger metro market or even a medium-sized yeah. metro market, right? That because of this place's size and, and density, that access to things like writing a uh, editorial for the Southern Illinoisan or, you know, contributing to WS by you or um, you know, starting up your own silly little podcast that somehow gets enough legs because you, uh, you know, have have a you know uh, have a fringe Facebook account. Like these things are all plausible in in this place. It's kind of a microchasm of like the best of both worlds. The yeah. the quality of production and standards and ethics that typically go into these things um, and and have to occur in larger metro markets, but the accessibility of uh, you know that that small hometown feel, mm-hmm. and that gets me to kind of the the ask. I've got like 18 different questions to go along with this, but I'm gonna drop one and see where we go from there. Um, was that accessibility to uh, kind of these these media organizations and, and mechanisms something that has helped you grow uh, in and like get to where you are now uh, with the work that you do? I would, when you mean accessibility to media, do you mean just as like a viewer, as a consumer, or do you mean as a participant? In as, a, as a participant, as, as somebody who could, who could, while you do have to work to get there, mm-hmm. that it wasn't as if there were so many barriers that it was improbable or, Im, Im, yeah. or you know, not plausible for you to even get there to begin with. Yeah, that's actually a really good point because I'm starting to realize that because of that accessibility, I was never, I never had to learn how to prove myself to people who don't know me. Um, So like getting into SIU was, you know, I had good enough grades um, in my exchange, like that all helped me um, to be able to have the self-esteem to even like apply to the Daily Egyptian mm-hmm. and to start as a reporter there and just to kind of like dive in and be like, all right, I'm a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, that like, and that's how I got to WSIU too. I just like called Brad Palmer one day and was like, I want to work for you. When can I, like, when, when is Jen in the office? Mm-hmm. Um, and then Jen actually popped up in the newsroom at the DE. So then I like cornered her and I was like, like, I want to work for you next. <laughs> and so like, that's how I got it. Yeah. And now I'm, you know, graduated and I didn't take internships, which I, I should have, but I'm not going to talk about what I regret because I'm trying not to regret things. <laughs> but like, I, I thought being in the journalism industry, that like I was not exposed to the working conditions mm-hmm. of the journalism industry. Yeah. Like by the time that I was a kid and able to, you know, read and 
consume media in an intelligent way, in a critical way. I, by this point, like the Southern was already being kind of cut down mm -hmm. in terms of like the resources that they were being provided to be able to put out a daily paper. Mm -hmm. um, and I really never really liked broadcast news in the first place. I thought it always was kind of hokey. Mm -hmm. And so, and I grew up mainly on PBS. That's like, and also where we lived, we could only get PBS. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, was never introduced to a reporter before I joined journalism. Mm -hmm. And so then working in the journalism industry in the Southern Illinois market is very different than the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. And so now that I am in Nashville and trying to establish roots there, at least for my 20s, mm -hmm. um, I'm now coming up against the struggle of like, you have to learn how to sell yourself. And because you didn't have internships, because you decided just to like chill over the summer and work for WSIU, mm -hmm. um, like people don't know you. And you know, at the time, my rationale was, well, the journalism industry in Southern Illinois doesn't have the resources that it has to maintain the coverage that it needs that I need to stay here for the summer because these people need reporting. Yeah. And like, so for me, it was very service oriented. But I, sometimes I wonder like whenever I put that in cover letters or I'm talking to hiring, hiring managers in like a more metropolitan area, I question how much like they believe that mm -hmm. or how much they can even resonate with that like how many of these people actually live in news deserts mm -hmm. like that's a big thing it's like you know i'm <laughs> i'm constantly like hit with the realization that like many of my peers don't have a clue what's happening on the local level mm -hmm. because they don't have the journalism that is you know wanting to reach them mm -hmm. and i think and it's not like the local media's fault here no, no it's not their fault at all it's because we haven't had the investment mm -hmm. and so we're doing the best that we can and so it's really frustrating to come from that type of environment where you're forced to be resourceful and you know you're kind of like a one-woman show mm -hmm. and then to like you know really have a lot of this grit and then to like go into like a major media market and then realize like none of that really matters to them. Mm -hmm. Or you haven't been able to tell your story in an impactful way for them, for their ears to perk up. So that's what I'm learning right now. Um, but I think I've kind of, I got a job with the Illinois Student Assistant Commission. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not actually pursuing journalism as like a staff reporter or a public radio reporter, which I am like sad about because I love being in the newsroom. Mm -hmm. But I kind of thought to myself, you know, Journalism is a type of industry that has been, that has really done some not great things for this country in terms of like how newspapers used to really perpetuate like racism and would put ads for people who were escaping the South for like people to kidnap them and bring them back. You know, and that's like, that's one element of journalism that we haven't really atoned for in the industry as well as you know, how we report on crime, how we report on just communities that maybe the reporters don't belong to. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, if I'm, as a white woman that comes from an upper middle class family, although we have working class roots, I need to have a little bit more skin in the game mm -hmm. in terms of like, I need to actually put down the pen and paper and the camera, and I actually just need to help these people. You know, people who need to be explained, like, how you can apply for public assistance. Not everyone knows how to do that. Or to, like, bring your computer and your hotspot, you know, to some random person's house in the hills 
to get them to sign up for um, you know, public assistance that they can only do through the internet. Mm -hmm. Because there's this huge technological gap that like many people are being left behind or they don't have access to the services that do exist for them. Now, are those services the most efficiently run? Is money, you know, organized in the most um, responsible way? Maybe, maybe not. I don't really have the experience to say that. But there are things that exist. It's just that the information and how to get to it is so convoluted that, like, people don't have time or, you know, the will or the energy or the resources to do that. And I think, like, that really came true to me over the pandemic as I had a lot of time to think about, like, how can I serve my community the best? Mm -hmm. And so I kind of came to the conclusion that, like, yeah, journalism's cool and all, but, like, I can serve my public you know, my public, as if I own <laughs> the public sphere. Very nice. You can say my when you feel as though you belong yeah. as part of something greater, and that's that's a reasonable assessment. And that's how I feel about Southern Illinois. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like Southern Illinois is, like, my, my home. Mm -hmm. And so I want to do as much as I can to just, like, let people know that they're cared for. Like, I worked for Tammy Duckworth in the fall, and so I'd have to take constituent phone calls. And, like, that's the worst thing. To hear people talk about how much they love America, that America does not seem to love them. Mm -hmm. And that's just, like, the hardest thing. God, that, that, uh, oh, that was like an arrow through the heart, Amelia. <laughs> that, that, but that phrasing. Yeah. That phrasing is, is, such a definition of why to do what you would do, you know, for some, and, and, and it's not like you just had one person say that or express that feeling to you, it's like that was, I'm, I'm sure, a constant. Yeah, like I had people who were about to kill themselves because they had no food to eat and they couldn't get an appointment. Like, and having someone tell you that, and you have like, and you can't help them because unemployment's a state-run yeah. thing, and you're working in a federal office, and so there are jurisdictions, and you can't, you know, there are limits to what you can do, which maybe shows the inefficiencies in our government. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, like, that's just so hard. And, you know, I, and you just want to give those people a hug. Like, you just want to be like, I care for you. Yeah. But you can't. I mean, you can say that, but you, you know, you're over the phone. The, the other side of it that really frustrates me is our, our modern benevolence culture in this country and, and the issue that those who seek to participate in benevolence all too often do so uh, more so for the theatrics of it and the performative aspect of benevolence as opposed to supporting the true benevolent act, which would be functional policy yeah. that fixes the core issue that makes mm -hmm. benevolence a requirement to begin with, yeah. right? Like the, the reality that, uh, you know, while, while food bank work is important and helpful and takes care of a lot of people in a lot of different ways, that that barely scratches the surface of, you know, 5% of the hunger needs in this country, and that the real fix for that is a functional uh, you know, supplemental nutrition program uh, that that everybody has easy access to. I mean, what occurred in just the mo most recent months, uh, specifically in Carbondale, too, because every student technically qualifies uh, for 
um, for free or reduced lunch, right, that, that every kid in Carbondale that goes to a Carbondale school got a PEBT card with hundreds of dollars loaded on it, whether they were in dire straits or not, mm -hmm. just because that's the system. And everybody, if, if one person needs to eat, then everybody gets to eat, and that's our policy, and we fund that through mechanisms that we know are most functional, which is cash in people's hands, mm -hmm. to go utilize their own agency. I love how much focus you had on the concept of agency um, you know, in, in the beginning of our discussion, and, and to allow them to fix it themselves by just giving them a, a, a one small tool to get them the distance on that. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know, I, whenever you're an intern for Tammy Duckworth, you get one Zoom session with her. Otherwise, you don't get to talk to her at all. Yeah. Um, but that was my question to her. I was like, how, how do we convince the GOP that, like, government can actually help people? Mm -hmm. How can we do that? And she just said bluntly to me that, like, they don't believe in that, so they're going to organize the systems and they're going to organize these institutions so that they don't work, so that you lose faith in government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, like, blew my mind yep. because my whole time I'm thinking, like, how can I persuade them? Yep. And maybe, like, it never hit me that, like, maybe you two are just operating, operating in different types of truth where I'm more of the Rousseau where I'm like, yeah, everyone's good, everyone's kind, and they're more of the Hobbes where, where they think that, I've, you know, like the world is some terrible place and, you know, they live by the mindset of scarcity. Well, it's, it's, also, it's also where a certain level of moneyed interest put their investment in early on. Exactly. Right? I mean, you know, we, we, we talk about uh, the GOP being the party of Lincoln and, and you know, how the, the Democratic Party used to be, uh, you know, very involved in the KKK. And, you know, this is, these are things hundreds of years ago, right? But they're realities, and we understand that things change over time, and things flip-flop and move around, and, and what is is not always what will be. And so change happens over time, and at some point in time, you know, 50, 60 years ago, money and interest looked at their choices of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party and said, we put our investment here with the Republican Party, and then we work to get them to actively push against government, and then that yeah. essentially forced the other side, the Democratic Party, to say, hey, we're the party of government that becomes either for or against, yet somehow we both work in the same institution. <laughs> like, yeah. That doesn't seem right to me at some yeah. level, but... Uh, you know, I, and I and I can and I absolutely empathize with conservative values like we want lower taxes, right? And that is something that definitely comes into play when you are of the mind that government doesn't work to begin with. Well, why should I put money into something that I don't see as working to begin with? That's a totally valid thought. Yeah, and it's money that I've owned, right? Yeah. It's money that I've worked for. It's my money. Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole different concept of where does money actually originate. And, you know, you go back to, yeah. uh, you know, I'm pretty sure a recent musical uh, about uh, Alexander Hamilton may help touch on that a little bit. But, I mean, just, you know, the, the other fact that, you know, what, what really creates money up until, you know, Bitcoin uh, became into existence, that money... <laughs> We don't have to go down a cryptocurrency. Well, that was that was a more facetious than anything. About it, so. Do what? 
I'm very ignorant about it, so I would <laughs> prefer not to speak. It's 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 reasonable not to not want to even be concerned about it. But yeah. I mean, the the fact is that the money originates from the government, right? And that yeah. all all of the banks, large and small in this country, operate not as a a inherent uh, generator of value where they're at, but that they are leveraged by the government to be able to push forward these policies in a private sector manner and still have some leverage and control over it, everything from, you know, I mean, the, the PPP money was a great example of that, where mm -hmm. the government said, this money goes out, and then banks, banks take their admin cut, and that's how this flows through. And they were able, you know, able to pull the levers to allow every single bank in this country to get into um, that function to, to serve folks. And it's like, that happens because money starts at uh, at the governmental level. Yeah, it really does. And the fact that like our currency is not even based on the gold standard anymore yeah. is on faith. Yeah. So like that, yeah, it, it makes you look at money a little differently, mm -hmm. I think, whenever you think about how like this is really just paper that the government printed. Yeah. And that we're just all like on consensus that it means one, that it's worth $1. Yeah. And that $1 is worth, you know, whatever $1 is worth. <laughs> A stick of chewing gum these days. No. Yeah, right. It's like half a gallon of gas, uh, if that. The um, so what, one of the one of the questions that, that I asked, and you kind of alluded to it uh, a little bit. That's really kind of the, the core jumping off point for a lot of these conversations. But we're thirty seven minutes in, and we're <laughs> so what what drew like what? How did you come to be in Carbondale to to begin with? You talked about just kind of a, applying for, yeah. for school here. Was it like a top choice that brought you to here, or was it just like, ah, it's close and it'll work out and here we go? Yeah, yeah, it was close. It'll work out. Um, my parents had told me, like, I was always under the assumption that um, if I got a scholarship, I could go wherever I wanted to. Yeah. Um, but senior year was such a weird year for me it's like i came back as a 21 year old mm -hmm. mentally and then i had to regress back into a 17 year old mm -hmm. because i wasn't allowed to do what i could do over in sweden because the laws are different and just like how they treat young adults is different i was kind of like <laughs> treated like a child whenever i came back mm -hmm. and i was like i've just literally like Oper you know, been able to navigate foreign mass transportation and like traveled all around europe and was able to like not get kidnapped or killed and like not or not get mugged or not mugged but like you know like um pit pocketed yeah. because that's a thing if you go to like populated highly populated european cities mm -hmm. um and so i like realized that i just like did not have the drive to like pick up and move again and i was really like Whenever you leave your best friends for a year, they, like, their lives still go without you. And so I was just dealing with a lot of personal stuff with, you know, not having all my friends that I just made live, you know, in all the different four corners of the world, and I'm never going to see them again. <laughs> like, I haven't seen my friends I made on exchange since exchange, mm -hmm. um, besides, like, a few of them. And um, my friends in here were obviously different people, so then I had to, like, relearn them. And there were just so many things personally that I just was not thinking about, like, what do I want to do whenever I grow up? Mm -hmm. And I was kind of under the um, impression that, like, I could just be, like, a wanderer, like, just, like, pick up and go mm -hmm. and just, like, see where the wind takes me. I, I think that's just, like, something that 18-year-olds and 17-year-olds romanticize about. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I kind of started doing that. I started hanging around a group of people where that was like their thing, where it's like, yeah, let's just do drugs and do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that got knocked out of me really quickly whenever my parents were very upset with me that that's like the path that I had chosen. Mm-hmm. So then I had to kind of clean up my act. Um, and all this was happening at Shawnee because my mom was like, well, if you don't know where you're going to go to college, then you're going to go to community college. Yeah. yeah. Which was great because that like... Like, that's where I decided I was going to do journalism. That's where I really, like, fell in love with Southern Illinois again. Mm-hmm. Because before I left on my exchange, I I hated it here. I, like, I hated that my family came from farming. I hated that, you know, my cousins were rednecks. Um, I, like, was just, like, I hated that, like, everyone wore camo as it was fashion. I just was, like, so over it. <laughs> And now I have a completely different perspective. Like now I like love the fact that like my great grandparents were farmers and like they lived in Balcom. And I love the fact that like, you know, my, my family still has those like values of like living off the land and, you know, appreciating nature. Like those are all like, like those are the core elements that I was taught as a kid, you know, that like, if you love the land, it'll love you back type of deal. Um, and, you know, I started to, like, fall in love with, like, rural communities after my exchange. I was like, you know, because whenever you're born into it, you don't realize how unique it is. And then whenever I would go to Sweden, my host parents would be like, so do you live in a cornfield? And would be like, no, I actually live in the woods. <laughs> um, or they'd be like, um, you know, they didn't understand the concept of, like, a hauler. Or, like, the fact that, like, people live in food deserts, Mm -hmm. you know? And, like, there are rural areas in Sweden, of course, and there are, like, really remote villages as there is in every country. But um, I didn't appreciate Southern Illinois for what it was until after I came back and I was kind of forced to, like, be at Shawnee all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Because on my off days or, like, during breaks in classes, me and my friends would just, like, back road, and we wouldn't, like, look at the GPS, and we'd just, like, see where these roads would take us. Um, And that was really interesting, because you really get to see, like, the environment of Southern Illinois, which is, like, super beautiful, Mm -hmm. and, like, something that uh, makes me emotional, you know? I'll just be, like, looking at the hills or just the wide sky, and it's, like, a type of awe where you just kind of, like, you, you know, you're just... I don't know how to explain it. It's like flatlined almost in terms of like your brain. Does your command of language meet with your love of scenery? Oh, oh yeah. Like I I have I have had it in my mind that, that question since since the first five minutes of this. So like you know, wanting to explore your command of language and understanding that more, but like as you speak on your your love of the land and, and physical place, right? It's very clear that where where the language originates, not just up here, but in your heart, comes from kind of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I grew up in the country. Yeah. And whenever you grow up in the country where, like, you don't have good internet access and um, your parents are just constantly pushing you outside. And my dad's a stonemason, so he was always outside building rock walls. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, I think, just like... So him and Anders probably got along real well then. They actually didn't meet that often. Oh, what a shame. I know, I know. Oh, the Krugman. I know. Whatever the heck that Anders' specialty. Uh, I love <laughs> Anders. He used to, like, 
get really okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd have a drink or two. Yeah, he'd have a drink or two, and then he'd like start talking to me about politics while I'd be closing up the cash register. And me and him were on the same page. Yeah. He was a little bit more crass and a little bit more like. Older Swedish guy who was totally cool with just saying whatever he wanted to. Yeah, and he was also like in his seventies. Yeah. So some of it was kind of like, okay, Anders, like. I love you like family, and that's why I'm not getting creeped out. But, like, don't say that around Ronda. <laughs> like, like, I know I can hold my own, so I'm not that worried about it. But, um, yeah. But I think that's, I mean, I get super, like, immersed, I guess, mm-hmm. in, like, the way landscapes tell you about themselves mm-hmm. and what they reveal to you mm-hmm. and how every landscape I've noticed will say something different to me every different time I look at it. So like a good example is like whenever you're coming off the Cape Bridge and you're going into East Cape mm-hmm. from Cape and you're just like looking at the hill line mm-hmm. and like one time <laughs> um, I was over by Inspiration Point with a bunch of friends and it had just rained and it was the summertime and I just remember it looking like just almost jungly, mm-hmm. like 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 this type of wilderness that you don't necessarily feel every single time, or this just type of age, mm-hmm. like this like this feeling that like this has been here before you were born. It was here before your great grandparents were born. You know, it was here before your family came over to America, mm-hmm. and it's gonna be here after you die. Mm-hmm. And I think like that type of permanence is something that not just me but a lot of other people really like strive for whenever you realize that like you're gonna die someday Mm -hmm. and that like the house you live in you know in a hundred years the forest might have consumed it Mm -hmm. or you know I I think about Pomona and like how the forest is slowly taking back Pomona (laughs) or you know some of these other places and like my great-grandmother was born in Etherton, which is right next to Pomona, and so whenever I, like, drive through Etherton, it's, it's just the country, right? And I just, there's something that I've been kind of gnawing on for a while now, presently, and it's, like, this type of melancholy that things vanish mm-hmm. and they disappear, but also this type of, like, calmness, I guess, or this type of security and stability where it's like, that's okay. It's okay for that to disappear. It's okay for it to vanish because you too will disappear and vanish. Mm -hmm. And it's, and I think that's just something that I, you know, continually have to learn because there's just so many things in your life today that I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that thought. But it's just like the way that we live in modern life, it's like that's my only reprieve to remember that like none of this BS actually matters. Mm-hmm. Like, so there's no reason in getting upset about it or getting anxious about it whenever it's something that, you know, it's out of your control and like it's just the way it is. But on the other side of that, you're talking about the encroachment of nature back onto what man has cut through. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and how, you know, if, if, it, if it takes a billion,
million blades of grass to overgrow <laughs> uh, in, in you know in an old town or city or what have you, that it is the same concept for yourself as one more blade of grass among millions to overgrow again what you see as as you know something problematic in the world. And yeah. I don't know that 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 kind of ties it back into you know writing and, and media and that is part of this larger sphere of things that will never go away so long as you know we decide to not go Fahrenheit 451 <laughs> on our life. Let's hope not. <laughs> <laughs> That's a legitimate fear of mine. Unfortunately. It's a, it's a legitimate fear, period. I yeah. mean you know the in in you know what does that look like in modern context, right? Mm-hmm. What is what does that look like in a world where where media is not uh, you know, printed, binded pages, but it is, uh, you know, wires and servers mm-hmm. and, you know, data that is represented on a screen and text. And, you know, when somebody decides that they want to control that and flip a switch on or off, case in point, right now with uh, the, the coronavirus surge in India and the government's uh, control over the flow of information there, like, you know, where, where, where does the the uh, you know conceptual uh, what, what, how, how am I trying to refer to Fahrenheit 451 here but how does that 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 more traditional concept of media get get understood in a modern form where it's not about burning the books but it's about simply flipping the switch and cutting the power God yeah <laughs> yeah I think there is you know I'm all for progress and change yeah. and technology like I like I know tech can make life better but you know there's just something about knowing how to make your own clothes mm-hmm. you know or there's just something about knowing how to like grow potatoes or like cantaloupe you know like like these are not like I think that's something that bothers me kind of about a lot of you know my generation and some of the gener- more recent generations before me is that we're, like, so headstrong about progress and, like, I'm totally for societal progress. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, like, the material conditions of how we live our life, I'm really, you know, more leaning towards this traditional type of lifestyle, which is much more sustainable, Mm -hmm. where it's, like, everything's locally sourced. Mm -hmm. But knowing how to locally source things means that you have to know, like, how to do trades. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's something that I think with tech and just kind of, like, modernity, we're, like, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's really important for kids to know how to, like, program a computer, mm-hmm. but what about, you know, some of these more, like, sustenance yeah. type of skills that we've lost? And I think that goes to a really good point about, like, media, where, like, if you just start putting everything into servers, where it's all, like, compute, you know, in a computer, mm-hmm. then, like, what happens when the power's cut off? Yeah. Like, we, <laughs> like, are we going to go back to telegrams? Yeah. Like, like who knows how to read Morse code? I don't. Yeah. So, we'll be screwed then. Who knows how to actually bind a book? Who knows yeah. how to make parchment out of, you know, hemp? Because we'll have enough of it at that point when the power finally goes out, right? Yeah. Fingers yeah. crossed there. You know, we'll, we'll, at least, uh, we'll at least get that far with it. But, um, no, I mean, and, that's, and that's, a, that's a serious concern that I have. I mean, just, just personally, like, I'm, I'm incapable of anything that requires dexterity and skill mm-hmm. right <laughs> trying to work on my house trying to uh you know do something out in in 
uh, you know, in the land and, and you know, rear, rear fruit, like uh, plant things and grow them and, and, and not have them die on you. Like, yeah. well, I'm incapable, right? I, I, sure, it's great. I can sit here and, and we can talk and I'm, and yeah. I'm good at, at, at the media thing. But when it comes down to it, if all of this ceases to be and there is only existence left to participate in and not the creature comforts that we've, that we've grown into, um, what, uh, what, what some people may refer to as modernity, but like how modern is it? If like what you've really done is just silo people into the inability to provide for themselves. Right. Yeah. Did, did you, were, were, did you grow up being able to, to garner some of these skills, um, being able to, to work with textiles or being able to work, uh, with, with plants and no, okay. like, so like gardening and like growing your own fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, that's kind of, like, commonplace among me and all my friends. Like, my best friend Adam, he's into horticulture. So, like, especially with him in our most recent years, we've been really, like, buddying up together to kind of, like, dream about, like, living, like, me and my boyfriend and him and his girlfriend, like, us all living, you know, one day in the wilderness and just, like, farming and keeping care of ourselves and our families. But... I mean, I don't know how to sew. I don't, I don't know how to knit. Um, the last person who knew how to quilt was my great-grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, the last person who ever worked in the fields was my grandmother. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, I'm separated by that type of lifestyle by, multiple, by a couple generations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, like, have a lot of practice. Mm-hmm. Like, theoretically, I think I would be able to catch on to some things. But, like, even then, like, I'm... Like, I think that's a really good point that, like, here I am talking all great about it, that I don't even do it myself because, like, that's how um, the way our society has been organized. Mm-hmm. It's actually really, really interesting. Jane Adams wrote a really good book <laughs> in the 90s that I'm just now reading, and it's all about the transformation in rural living in southern Illinois, and she focuses on Union County. And... Um, in her book, she explains, like, how the post-World War II economy completely changed um, farm families' lives mm-hmm. and how the way that the national uh, market systems were organized and how federal policymakers viewed agriculture as just another branch of industry and not its unique um, entity itself, how they, you know, organized the market forces to push farm women who were um, partners on the farm and, you know, did just as much work as the men into pushing them off into off-the-farm jobs. Mm-hmm. So in Anna, it was the shoe factory mm-hmm. or working at the state hospital or being a teacher or something like that. Um, and I just, like, find that super fascinating because I wonder if that hadn't happened and... Like, how much of the retain, like, how much of that farming culture would we have retained in terms of, like, the agricultural values that rural communities tend to form over generations in terms of, like, how you help each other out and how, like, you're all very dependent on each other. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, you, um, you (laughs) it's really cool. It's, like, your own little democracy in itself. Um, and, yeah, I, I wonder about what it would look like if that hadn't happened. But at the same time, you know, whenever my grandparents could get off the farm, they were happy to. Like, like I don't think we need to romanticize what it was like to be a migrant worker. Like, that's really backbreaking work mm-hmm. where, um, 
you know, you're, like, it's, it's a lot of pain. <laughs> I mean, like, there's, there's just one quote from Edith Rindelman, who is actually the great, great grandmother of my best friend, but she, there's a quote from her in that book, and it's like, all anybody ever wanted me to do was work. And, like, I, if I had to relive my life again, I would be so upset. Or, like, I would not choose to relive what I've done because they just wanted me to work. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, that's something that my generation doesn't understand mm-hmm. is, like, how hard people had to work in the turn of the century. And, like, how we really, like, have it good <laughs> in terms of, like, you know, we buy our clothes at the store. And while, like, that might be difficult because money is not something that everyone has access to mm-hmm. and how, like, there it, it's its own problems in that system, um, you know, I, I wonder if there's a middle ground between the back-breaking work of what farming used to be like versus what it's like now where you have this technology and, like, where's the middle ground um, where we can maintain the important skills Mm -hmm. that come with that former lifestyle, but also have, like, the progress and kind of the leisure that we're allowed to have today. I mean, that is... That that, that is really the the ideal society. I mean, to have have the the abilities and, and the work ethic that would come with literally a, a, an entire lifetime of, of toiling over work, meeting somewhere with, you know, what are essentially the, the excesses of existence in, in this day and age, right? Yeah. yeah. Man, I, you know, I bet... Got a lot of, like, deep sighs and a lot of thinking out of, out of this conversation. That's my life. I'm, I'm sorry. No, don't apologize. That's what this is for. Okay. Like cool. this is this is really meaningful stuff, right? And and to connect it back to, um, you know, something like Jane's, uh, you know, because she didn't just write a, a book because she read some books, right? No. This is a this is a lived generational experience for Jane, just the same as it is for you. Yeah. Well, and the fact that like, the the introduction of it like brought me to tears because yeah. like. My grandparents died whenever I was, like, not even born. My, my grandpa died before I was born, and my grandmother, and this is on my mom's side. Mm-hmm. My grandmother died um, whenever I was two. And they're the ones that are from southern Illinois. Mm-hmm. And um, I was always asking my mom, you know, like, where did we come from? Like, how did we end up here? Why are we in, like, this small town mm-hmm. in the middle of the country that, like, no one seems to know about? Like, what's this deal? Like, why can't I go live in Chicago or New York? And, you know, she could tell me what she could, but she could never tell me about the historical context that they lived in because she wasn't born either. She was born in the early 60s. And so, you know, there's this guy kind of like this hole in me of, like, why do I feel a connection to these random towns and this landscape that I don't know why? And then I read her book, and then, you know, my mom... (laughs) gets an ancestry account, so we're able to, like, find people beyond three or four generations, and I start to realize that, like, the history that Jane is talking about Mm -hmm. is my history, and that's the first time that I've ever seen it written about, and it, like, analyzed, and it connected to other, like, larger historical processes that were happening, and, like, because it's been so, like, profound for me, it 
it makes me want to do that for other people because there are so many people who are Americans, but they don't know how they became Americans. Mm-hmm. They don't, like, like they just know that they exist. I have I have this stump speech that, that I work off of here in, in town where I'm like, I'm from Carbondale generations and generations back, live on a road named for yeah. you know, my great-grandfather and a house that my grandpa built in 1964 <laughs> with his bare hands and whatever else. But my understanding of my lineage and my connection to this place, which is carnal in the sense that yours is just mm-hmm. the same, right? That mine only, that, that, that it's only within the context of my life and not and not rooted as far back as it needs to be in an understanding of who were the first people that set foot on this land that were my kin, right? It's, it's easy to understand on, on one side of my family. On my father's side, it's, it's an immigrant story. Great-grandparents on grandpa's side, on father's side, came over here. In the in the 1900s, 1900s, to to mine coal and, and do whatever in in Heron. Mm-hmm. Grandpa goes to Italy during World War II, meets grandma, comes home, exchanges letters for years, and then grandma finally comes over here. And that's that's so cool. that's, that's an easy story yeah. to kind of put into a box and be like, all right, there's there's the American immigrant story. That's how I got here on that side. But then there's on my mother's side where it's like it it stops at, you know, well. There's your great grandpa's house that moved from one hill to the next, and your aunt Dorothy used to own all of this, and uh, you know your your great grandma worked in this or lived in this one room house on Pleasant Hill and worked in the in the glove factory her whole life. But it's like yeah. why why does it stop there? Where where is the mid 1800s? Where is the the all all of this activity that led to us being you know planted here and cemented here, and, and there was never there was never an interest in passing down stories of yeah. that. It was just, well, let's live this life and enjoy these creature comforts because why do we have to dwell on mm-hmm. the things like the lifetime of labor that, you know, a, a you know, great ancestor would have to go through. Yeah. Um, which I, I think that's, you know, maybe that's something that's kind of lost and, and maybe that's where the, where the meaning of, of the now and the then and the values of both come to play is making sure that these stories are, are handed down well um, as, as opposed to just kind of anecdotal in, in passing and, you know, you know, drink your ice cold drink and enjoy your, your, your warm hot meal and, and be happy with it. Yeah, well, I think a great, I have actually a story to like put on top of that Currently, I'm st- I still write and I still report, mm-hmm. and I'm reporting now um, on these communities that were founded by um, some of them were recently freed or runaway slaves, mm-hmm. but um, some of them were just like free Black Americans that were coming from North Carolina and Virginia, and they settled in um, a little south of Thompsonville, mm-hmm. and then they settled in Carrier Mills. You might have heard of them because Pepper Holder t- talks about Lakeview quite often. Yeah, yeah, but, I, but I'd have, I'll have to go back. So I will have to send you the that podcast. Pe- Pepper, <laughs> yeah, I Pepper, Pepper my longest podcast. Yeah, he was right around two hours, just a little, wow. just a little under. We barely scratched the surface. Oh, yeah. Barely scratched the surface with Pepper. I mean, we could sit down and probably do another 10 hours and still have not scratched the yeah. surface. And that... Like to, to before before I let you off and, and run it with that part, that's part of this project too, right? Mm-hmm. Like the reason why 
this needs to happen, why this podcast and, and you know, be, be damned the, the name or the context of goofy social media behind it. Like, it's a brand that I've built, so it's what I run with. But, like, the reality is, like, this is what we're missing is this is this modern format of these age-old stories. Yeah. And if we don't get them now with the people who, like, we're as close to them, the, 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 the origin of these stories as we can get, then we really are going to lose them one generation from now and yeah. not be able to get them back. Yeah, exactly. And that is so true with, I think, black Americans. Mm-hmm. Like, like they're one of the many um, various versions of Americans where that is acutely true. Mm-hmm. And... I've been speaking to some of the descendants from some of the pioneers that settled these communities. And it's so breathtaking and, like, beyond me to, like, just... I just think it's so cool that, like, I'm able to, like, get to know these people where their ancestors were, like, you know, the people who were actually living up to the American ideals. Mm-hmm. And, like, I've been really fascinated about this time in American history after the American Revolution where people were trying to live up to these ideals of, like, equality and liberty and individual rights and just how... Like, whenever, you know, because there were, like, free um, African Americans living in colonial America. Mm -hmm. And, like, those, that group of people is just completely ignored in American history. And it's, like, that's what it means to be American. That's, like, it means, like, and so for, sorry, I get really into it. it. But it's just, like, for, (laughs) you know, the ancestors of these people who were leaving, like, really horrible conditions and the threat of their freedoms so they came to southern illinois and they settled in like the most remote place and they were able to create education um community they were able to create churches all in spite of you know the kkk and you know people who were trying to kidnap them people who would um rape them i mean like really horrible things they did that all and they were able to create like this large family and this community that has like hundreds of people and they're all connected with like the same trunk Mm -hmm. or the same like i like to view it as like a forest it's like all of you know the trunks are all like the original people and then the branches are their descendants and they were able to grow and they were able to prosper and like that is so amazing that that happened in southern illinois and yet we don't talk about it yeah and that's just like like, that's what it means to be Southern Illinoisan. Mm-hmm. It means to come from a place where you're not respected and you carve out your own place and you kind of, like, claim it for yourselves. But you don't do it in a way that's oppressive and, you know, just, like, just, like, hyped up on power and control. But you do it so that you can have, you know, your children and your children's children prosper because that's what matters. It matters, like, for the future. And I just think, like... Like, that's what I'm reporting on now, and I'm just so, like, thankful that they're letting me into this and, like, wanting to talk to me because I'm able to hear their family's stories, and it's just, like, I don't know. I just love hearing about what people do, even, like, in, like, if it's 200 years ago yeah. because it's just it's just so fascinating. And it has such an impact on our existence now. I- exactly. I mean, like, these... 
these ancestors, their descendants were prominent people. You know, they were like Archie Jones, who was the first black councilman in Carbondale. It um, was, uh, you know, the first black Miss Southern Illinois. I mean, like, there's much more, and I have them written down, but I can't recall them off the top of my head. But just, like, this is an amazing accomplishment. And I think it is actually to the demise of Southern Illinois that we have been kept separated in terms of race and class whenever, like, we could actually create a type of Southern Illinois that maintains all of its beautiful picturesque um, versions, but where like there's actual investment Mm -hmm. and there's actually thought about the future and like, how are my children going to be able to like create a life here? Mm -hmm. Because I often think that like, we want to think like that, but then our actions don't actually line up with like those wants. And I, you know, I'm, and I hope that like with my reporting, I can at least maybe find a little bit of, like, a sliver of maybe, like, hopefulness or a solution as to, like, how that can happen. Um, And it might just be, like, documenting, you know, this reunion. They're going to have this, um, like, a family reunion on Memorial Day where they go to one of the cemeteries where everyone is buried in the family, and they have a barbecue to keep up the the cemetery and the church and stuff. And so... I'm going to probably attend that. But I just think that's so cool because, and also for them, like, the reason that a lot of these descendants left was because of the racism here. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any opportunities, so they left. And I do the same thing. But they come home. It's like a pilgrimage for them. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to one lady, and she was saying she lives in o- Ohio now, and how um, whenever she brought her mom back after decades of not being there, mm-hmm. it was just like, it was like she came home. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, especially for people of African descent, um, people who, you know, are part of any type, any type of um, community that's been forced to flee, mm-hmm. I think that, like, that ability to come home is something that needs to be cherished and protected. Because everyone needs a home. Everyone. Like, everyone needs a home. So... And this is ours. Right on. 56, Amelia Blakely. We always end on something that, that matters with these podcasts and the concept of home and, and what that means here, not just in Carbondale, but Southern Illinois is one of those things. Um, have a good one, folks, whatever that one may be. <laughs>